So we are talking about joy, and I hope that you're with me in Hebrews chapter 12. I want to share with you briefly a story that brought me great joy before we get into Hebrews, and I have permission from Pastor Bud and Robin to share this wonderful and joyful story of something that happened just this week. Many of you know, if you're in the Mesquite neighborhood group, that for years, Pastor Bud, Robin, and the Mesquite group take a gaggle of foster children from Jonathan's place, which is there in South Garland, on a tree farm for some fun Christmas cheer. Yes, to pick out a tree, to drink hot chocolate, to do the hayride, all the things. They've been doing this for years. So just like they do every year, Bud and Robin and some of the Mesquite neighborhood group folks show up at the tree farm, and then they see the big old van pull up to the front, and then they see nine kids pour out all different ages, shapes, and colors. And then they see a man and a woman guiding this group of nine children. So then Robin greets them and says, hey guys, how are we doing? And they're like, we're, we're good. And she says, well, I notice y'all are a little underdressed and it's cold outside. So Robin does what she does. And man, she just starts loving and serving kids. And she puts gloves on them and scarves. And the man and the woman are just like, whoa, okay. Then Bud comes up and the man says, well, you know, what's next? Now that they're all Christmased up. And then Bud says, well, I'll tell you what, let's all hop in the hayride. We go over and we pick out a tree. Now, kids, we all got to agree on a tree now. Make sure it's a good size, but not too big. Because then we get back in the hayride and we come back up to the barn. And I'll tell you what, I'll buy y'all all hot dogs and hot chocolate. So now all the kids are all bundled up and super pumped up. Because, hey, this is some Christmas joy going on. So then they get in the hayride, and everything is rocking along. They're all chit-chatting and having a wonderful old time. And then Pastor Bud's phone rings. So then Pastor Bud gives the old, hello, the Bud greeting. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Have you ever talked to him on the phone? And it's the woman from Jonathan's place. And she has a question. Hey, Bud, are you guys coming this year? And he says, yeah, uh, we're, we're here. And he starts to look around at these lovely nine children and the man and the woman on the hayride with him. He says, just one moment. Excuse me, are you guys from Jonathan's place? And the happy man with the Christmas joyful children on the hayride says, what's Jonathan's place? And Bud's... <laughs> And Bud says, well, uh, Merry Christmas. I guess I'm not going to buy you some hot chocolate or hot dogs. No, I don't work here. I'm so sorry. I've got to go find some other foster children that I'm actually here for. That's not exactly what he said, but he was so sweet to say, y'all can hang on to the gloves and whatever. They just happened to find some wonderful family with nine foster children that happened to come from church and bump into the Riddells for a joyful Christmas time. So then he goes back to the front, finds the other white van with the actual Jonathan's Place kids, and they did the whole thing again. That has nothing to do with my sermon. But it was hilarious and I wanted to share it. Okay? Amen? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. This may be a familiar passage to us. Uh, I preached it a few years back 
during New Year's, and I know that you remember every word I've ever said, so, you know, we're just going to go for it again anyway. That was a joke, too. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and we're going to talk about joy this evening. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God. Tonight we're going to talk about two questions. The first is, what is joy anyway? The second question is, is it possible and can we actually live joyfully in spite of all of our circumstances? So the first question is, what do we mean when we even talk about joy? And then the second question toward the end of our time will be, how is it that we can actually live joyfully? Because Jesus is our example, and somehow in his life, joy could coexist with a cross. And some of us in this room may not be suffering the kinds of physical pain that Jesus endured, but notice that what we just read was to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, from those who are out to get us. Now we begin to see, oh, maybe this is for me because I do feel like there is some emotional and just situational opposition where I can't seem to get any traction in my life and in my journey. But I'm telling you that joy is still available even in those situations of suffering and struggle. But it all depends on where we fix our eyes. Two weeks ago, I brought an anchor, and that anchor was still wet. So I'm glad I kept it in my car for like the next three days before I gave it back to my cousin's husband. And it stank up my car, so I remember the anchor. But you might remember it because it was that prop that we drug up here and did this whole thing. And then last week, Pastor Kathy brought a staff because she said she wanted to be like me. And I thought, I can't leave the prop train, you know. So I brought these tonight, Pastor Kathy. I'm holding up binoculars. How we can live joyfully and what is joy anyway? These two questions, I think, have everything to do with where we fix our eyes. So more on the binoculars here in a moment. But I want you to understand that it actually is possible, I believe, as God's people to live joyfully. But first, what do we mean when we say joy? Joy is one of those Christmas card words. You know what I'm talking about? We were a Christmas light looking this past week, and every street I saw the big red letters with the nativity in the O. Do you know what I'm talking about? Joy. So I feel like this time of year it's omnipresent. But do we really understand what that word entails? I think our culture has a better grasp on happiness, right? 
Happiness is that kind of pleasurable, just everything is kind of, huh, this is good, that's great. But I think happiness is elusive. And that's not to say that happiness is bad or wrong and that joy is good and better. I'm just trying to say it's a different quality. It's more of a surface level kind of elusive emotional state of being. You guys with me on this? It's a word we use every week, right? I'm just trying to draw some delineation because I believe that joy, when we talk about joy, that is something that has a deeper quality. And I think the way I might describe it is this. When we're driving down the road and we hear the Christmas music on the radio, it kind of makes me happy, okay? I can be sitting there in the front seat like, yeah, I still love this time of year. I love to see all of the lights and all of the magic of this season. It makes me happy, okay? But I was thinking even today of Joy, on the other hand, is something that happens and originates from behind me in the car. And that is at every single day that I've been riding in the car with my little four-year-old Nora Hope, I hear her quietly and wistfully singing songs to Jesus as she looks out the window And to hear my four-year-old in her sweet and quiet little voice, in her own little way, in her own little heart, where it's just her and the window and God singing that Jesus is the light of the world. That to me is joy, okay? So happiness is Feliz Navidad on the radio. For some of you, that's torture, because you've heard it a million times. But joy would be that sense that hits you in some deeper place, something that's a little bit more connected to the tissue of something more than just an elusive, pleasurable contentment. You with me on that? And I think that we need to make that distinction between happiness and joy because when the Bible uses a word about contentment and things being good, They don't use happy. The biblical writers use this word joy. Hundreds of times they use the word joy. And I think when we think of joy in this deeper, more guttural, soulful sense, we can begin to understand why Paul can write from jail, rejoice always. And again, I say to you in case you missed it, rejoice How can Paul write about joy from jail? How can James, in the next book in Hebrews, write something as strange as consider it pure joy when you face struggles of many kinds? How on earth can we write in such a way? Toby alluded to it earlier. When she says that joy is something that you choose But I want to take it a step further and say because joy is the birthright of being a child of God. The second thing we need to understand, before we leave that slide though, is that it is a fruit of God's Spirit. Y'all know in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love and what? Joy, peace, patience, all these Christmas card kind of words that are birthrights for those who have been born into the Spirit of God, right? 
So I want us to think that joy is this ever-present well within us on some deep soul level that is a well that can be drawn from even in the present circumstances that are anything but happy and content, right? So joy is something that is from within, which leads us to our second part of this answer to the question, what is joy? Joy, I don't believe, is a requirement in our Christian life. And what I mean is that it's something that you better be joyful or else, right? Joy is not a requirement. Joy is, though, a consequence, okay? It's that fruit, it's that birthright of our union with who? The most joyful being in the universe. Yes, whoa. I'm going to return to that bold statement that I just made in a moment, but before I want to linger with this idea of joy being a birthright, Toby, I'm still highlighting your story again because you shared it. I'm just going to share it again. Joy, joy was available and something that was welled up within Toby even in a season of depression. How is that kind of thing possible? You look at the Old Testament and every time, not every time, but a lot of the times when they use the word joy, they talk about being filled with joy which I think gives you permission to realize that sometimes you're a little bit fuller, sometimes you're about half a tank, but I want you to understand that I believe if you are a child of God, you've never got an empty tank. And I believe it's because what we see in the Hebrews passage is that we can fix our eyes beyond our circumstances to a greater and deeper joy that is greater than any of the darkness in this world if we would fix our eyes on Jesus and the joy on the other side of struggle. But that's for the second half. I'll get there in a minute. Now to this bold statement that I made of joy being a consequence of our union with the most joyful being in the universe. I think it was four years ago now a question was asked by the man James Bryan Smith, who we've mentioned recently. He wrote the books, The Good and Beautiful God, The Good and Beautiful Life, The Good and Beautiful Community. Y'all read some of those, yeah? We did a class on The Good and Beautiful God. We heard him speak, Pastor Bud and I, and he asked this question, and four years ago, I'm still trying to get my head around it, and the question was this. What if you allowed yourself to believe, to really believe, that God is the most joyful being in the universe. And the reason why I'm still reckoning with that question is because in my development as a child of God, if you gave me a thousand words to describe God, I'm not sure that joyful would even crack the top 500 but then I was brought to this passage in Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Yes, that's a book of the Bible. It's only three chapters. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. It's wild. The beginning of Zephaniah is this oracle. All these prophetic books are a collection of many sermons. And the technical word is oracles. All this is free, by the way. 
But to understand the magnitude of the verse I'm about to read you, you got to understand that it comes after an oracle that says God is going to wipe away all of this mess in the world. And you guys better watch out, and you guys better watch out, and you guys better watch out, or else. And then you get to chapter 3. And Zephaniah begins to pivot because God is responding more and more to the cries and the repentance of his own people. And you get down to near the end of the book. And in chapter 1, where God was about ready to just wash his hands of the whole thing, this radical shift occurs where in chapter 3, verse 17, we read this. For the Lord your God is with you. We just sang that. And he is a mighty Savior. Now listen to this. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Could you imagine in your worst moment when you think you've blown it and when you think you've sinned the biggest sin, if that's even a thing, that if you are a child of the one Jesus called Abba, He is actually singing over you. I imagine a father over the bed of a sleeping infant after he brings her home for the first time and he just sings because joy does that. Joy causes you to overflow with all the goodness even in spite of difficulty And could you imagine that even in your worst moment, you are still loved more than you could ever ask, earn, or imagine. And that if we would tune our ears to hear, we might even hear the Father and Maker of heaven and earth singing songs of joy over us. You thought he was out to get you. In fact, he's wildly in love with you. And by the way, he doesn't just love you. I'm convinced that he likes you. How would this change your view of yourself if you would dare to believe this verse? And even now you're saying, no, 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 Adam, you're pulling some random obscure verse from a random obscure Old Testament book. Let me remind you that when St. John, who walked with Jesus and knew the Abba that Jesus knew, when he had one word to fill in the blank, God is, he didn't say holy, he didn't say powerful, he didn't say mighty, he didn't say wrathful, he didn't say a number of words he could say. He said, God is what? Love. That means that at the core and fiber of the God of the universe's being, he is love. 
So when he is joyful, it is emanating from a place of love. When he is angry at this broke down, broken world, he is angry because he loves it so desperately. When he is wrathful for those creatures and people that make a hell of this earth, it is because he loves these people that are being ruined. An old philosopher said that God is love like an emerald is green. It just is through and through. And so I dare you to believe that the God who is love may actually not just love you, but like you and rejoice over you. Even when you don't feel it enough. Even when you don't even feel happy, could it be that God is joyful over you and that that joy could fill you up even when the world and the darkness is closing in around you how would this change your view of yourself how would this reality of God singing over his people change the view of this thing this week staring you in the face oh but we've got to fix our eyes on the joy set before us, if we can ever make it through the cross before us. What is joy? I don't have a little focus statement, but if we put these two ideas together, joy is this deep, ever-present well that is never empty but can be filled to greater or lesser degrees out of the overflow of our life with a joyful God. Just a moment ago, we prayed in that room before our service, taking in what we did at The Rock today, what we've done with our neighbors, the kids playing in the gym as we speak. Would we be a church known not just for our orange shirts, but of a people marked by joy? Because ain't nobody want to go to a church with a bunch of sad, sack, depressed, serious folk. I've been there, done that, Thank you, no thank you. How would this change us to believe that we can actually live joyfully in any circumstance? That's our second question. And the example that God, that the writer of Hebrews gives us is Jesus. And the metaphor that he uses is a race. So in order to understand the passage we just read, in light of this joyous God and how we might live out of the overflow, I want to take you back to the kind of race the writer of Hebrews had in mind, okay? It wasn't just our 5K in downtown Garland. It wasn't a drag race or a NASCAR race. I think Jared Kemper is the only person I know that likes NASCAR. Is there anybody else? You, that's right. This dude like drove to Austin just so he could ride in a Porsche the other week. And by the way, he got engaged, so congrats. Yeah. Make sure the headline is that you got engaged and not that you got to drive really fast and race, okay? But anyway, the image of race the the writer of Hebrews uses is the ancient Olympic marathon. Not unlike some of our marathons today, but there are some key differences. Number one, they didn't start and end usually in the same place. What happens is they took these runners way out to some far-flung space, and there's just a small crowd of people making sure they can start the thing, and then the runners run the thing. 
And then what happens is the race begins and the runners get going. And it wasn't this nice street kind of marked out marathon like you'd see downtown where you go on the Hunt Hill Bridge or anything. It was a wide and varied terrain in a lot of these spaces because you got to remember they didn't have paved roads. So you got to watch out because you're going to twist some ankles in this thing. So not only do you have the task of running a ridiculously long race, you also have to endure all the highs and lows of the varied terrain. And so just when this group is exhausted and falling out and thinning out and burning out, they begin to approach what they see in the distance as the finish line. And it's not just the finish lines that we set up in our modern day races. They would end these things in those enormous coliseums like you see on Rick Steves Europe. You know what I'm talking about? And what happens is they begin to see that enormous building in the distance and they start to move a little bit further and further and they begin to hear closer and closer the roar of their friends and family and countrymen losing their minds because that stadium is filled with people. So then the first runner enters into the Colosseum, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, and they take the final lap amongst the deafening roar of thousands of people seeing the end and last lap of a difficult race. Now this image is beginning to color our own minds when we think about our own journeys with Jesus. Don't we begin sometimes in a far away, far off place? Some of your stories are the kinds of stories that if I were a betting man, I would have never put money on you living and loving and serving Jesus and his people and the neighbors out there like you do today based on who you were then. Amen? Or is it, am I just the judgmental, like, some of y'all... Man, y'all didn't just come to Jesus. Y'all had to start sprinting with him because you had a long way to go. But this is what he loves to do. He takes us from these far off places and he sets us on a course for life and light. And don't we walk a high and varied terrain? Here's the thing I wish somebody shook my shoulders when I was 15 trying to figure out Jesus and life with him. I wish somebody shook me and said, dude, you got to understand that life is more than youth camp and discipleship weekends and like the rock concerts. Life with Jesus is less like a drag race and more like the endurance triathlons. I wish someone had said that to me. And just when you think that this is all done and we're exhausted, haven't we known people that have dropped out of the race? Aren't your hearts broken for people that have said, I'm done running? I don't believe there is the magic bullet phrase or argument to bring them back into the race, but I do believe that we can beg God for them because he's longing for them too. And I do believe that you don't shut down even though you're running this race with Jesus. I don't believe you shut down this relationship. I believe you keep that tether available. Because wouldn't it make more sense 
to walk alongside someone who's at least within reach of Jesus to help connect the two perhaps when they're ready or if they're ready to come back. People in my life I love so much, people have been broken. They're like, what do we do? What do we do? I said, we just, we still show up and I think we pray. We still beg God for them. We, we write their name down so we don't forget. And we just say, God, move in their heart. I don't believe God steamrolls anybody's heart, but I do believe he softens their hearts. Do you know the difference? I don't believe God changes our wills. I believe he softens us and gives us opportunities to say yes. And the Spirit is at work in ways that we can never fully understand. And the Spirit is groaning and interceding in ways that we can never fully understand. But let's join him. Let's join him in interceding for them. And aren't we like those runners that recognize at some point in our life that we don't run alone? And maybe for you it's not the Colosseum and the same experience of the adrenaline last lap, but haven't you recognized yet that you are here because of some of the people in this room and some of the people that maybe did shake your shoulders when you were 15 and say, wake up, dude. We do not run alone. And so at the beginning of our passage, the first word was, therefore. And if y'all grew up in a Baptist church with a preacher, every time you see the word therefore, you got to ask, what's it? I'm on the blue-collar comedy tour next week. That was terrible. This is what happens when I tell a funny story for no reason at the beginning of a sermon. Therefore, because of everything that he just wrote in the famous chapter 11 of Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Joshua and all these folks that kept on running. But the challenge for us, for followers of Jesus, is to live in the reality of the last lap, the energy and the adrenaline that, whoa, this is actually worth it. There's life here. There's light here. I'm not alone. This is it. The challenge for us is to live each step of the race and to look ahead toward the final lap of the race, even when the end seems to be out of sight. Which is why Jesus is such an amazing example for how we ought to run and how we can even live joyfully when there seems to be this cross, this barrier, this circumstance in front of us. The example that he uses after setting the stage of this race is that we're to run this way, right? That we need to first strip off all the hang-ups. And we got to know the terrain. That's what we just talked about. Somebody got to tell you it's a marathon. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a drag race or a sprint. And then the third thing he says is to fix your eyes on Jesus, right? Fix your eyes on the one ahead of you. This first one is so powerful for me. And I think it's a great reminder for us that you just got to understand there are things that are constricting and choking out the life that God has for you right now. I think you know it without me even naming some examples. In Celebrate Recovery, they use a catch-all term Celebrate Recovery is a Christian 12-step that I used to do and lead in uh, halfway houses and in a church I was at previously. And I still love this catch-all term that they would use. Everybody's in recovery from a hurt, hang-up, or habit. Everybody's got hurts, 
hang-ups, and habits, right? The trick is just which one's yours, right? Here are mine, which one's yours. We've all got hurts, hang-ups, and habits. And the writer of Hebrews recognizes, like, there is sin that so easily entangles us. What's that nagging thing that here in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s still can creep up on you without you really paying attention? It's just, oh, it so easily entangles you and trips you up. The idea here is that we need to first be aware of the hurt that's holding us and weighing us down. We need to be aware of the hang-up, the, the thing that I just can't let go of, the thing that still irks me. We also need to let go of those habits that easily entangle and choke us out and constrict the fully mature, fully formed image of God that you were made to be. The first step is being aware of it. The first step is to name it. Because you don't know what to take off. And the language here is that of like stripping your clothes. Hey, y'all, strip down so you can run this race. There are habits you need to repent of and move along away from. And God meets us and gives us a hand up to say, the sin that easily entangles is the kind of thing that is against your nature and your character as a beloved daughter and a beloved son. We need to strip off the hang-ups, to drop the sin, the baggage, the hurts, the habits that can trip us up. There is no joy where these things are choking the life out of us. And as we talked about briefly, that second reminder in our example for Jesus is to know the terrain, to run with what? Perseverance. A lot of times we run on emotion. Hello? How am I on my, in my life with God? I'm not really feeling it. I think that another thing I wish someone shook my shoulders and told me when I was 27, sometimes you've got to understand that life with God is a little bit boring sometimes. Sometimes showing up and listening or reading the Bible, I'm getting real, real, is not this drop-down, like, miraculous Pentecostal, faith healing, you know what I'm talking about, some of y'all. I think that's part of our formation. That we're in this for the relationship. And just like every relationship, there are ebbs and there are flows and there are highs and there are lows. But he's training us to run the distance, not just based on our own emotions that are elusive and fleeting. And the third thing, the reason we can do this is to Fix our eyes on the one ahead of us. Jesus, the author, perfecter, pioneer, the one who's gone before us. Can I share with you something I know I've shared before and I want to share again because I need reminding of it. In Matthew's gospel, I believe, there's this resurrection narrative when Jesus is like, hey, I'm raised, and he just like surprises people. Do you all know those stories? We've talked about them in our church. Um, when Before he does that, the angel shows up to a group of people, and the angel says, hey, the risen Christ has gone ahead of you. Go into Galilee, and there you'll meet him. And I just wanted to key in on that phrase that Eugene Peterson, the late author and translator of the Message Bible, he would take every moment on his agenda of the week and he would say, the risen Christ has gone ahead of me into Patricia's house at 4 o'clock on Monday. Do you get where I'm going with this? 
How would it change your week, your life, your joy right now to know that the risen Christ has gone ahead of you into Tuesday, into Wednesday, into Thursday. And that thing and that person and that situation and that struggle is not going to take the risen Christ by surprise. And every step then becomes an arrival to what God is already doing and what he is already moving into and renewing. Every step in arrival, if we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the one ahead of us. It's the only way that we can stay the course. I brought these binoculars because... um, Kathy brought something last week, and I brought something the first week. That's the main reason. But the secondary reason is because these are my dad's, and my mom gave them to me yesterday. And I remembered that he had a special case for these, and these are probably older than I am. And I remembered on my way here that my dad would bring these to every sporting event that we would go to. And I remember being at Texas Stadium in the nosebleeds, and he was sitting there. And I remember going to Kyle Field, which is the Aggie Stadium in College Station, and we'd be in the nosebleeds, and he'd be sitting there doing this. Reunion Arena, which was tiny. Section 300, Kenwood. And I realized that the thing about binoculars is not just that they help you see something from the nosebleeds, but the thing about binoculars is they also help you focus. Even when you're so far, they help you fix your eyes. And the image that I believe the writer of Hebrews is conveying is that in this situation, when pain obstructs your view, and we can't see the Spirit's movement in this, and we can't see this ever changing. What's your this, right? Your this, we've talked about a lot in our church, gets all the airtime in your vision. What would it look like for you to get this kind of vision that looks through it and beyond it to fix your eyes, even if it's so far in the distance, to fix your eyes on the one who can do something about this, even though right now you can't? What does it look like? The example that Jesus modeled for us is the very same thing. He fixed his eyes on the joy set before him, even though the road to get there was through a cross. Even though the road to get there was through opposition. Jesus himself had to learn to fix his eyes. And the rest of chapter 12 is about how he learned endurance and he was suffering. And we've got to fix our eyes and keep going through the crosses in opposition for the joy on the other side. The most shameful death they could ever imagine was the cross. And the writer says, shaming its shame, he was seated victorious at the right hand of God. What God thinks of you matters, not what they think of you. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, when Jesus, for the joy set before him, was walking on the road to the cross, it says, they hurled insults at him, they spat upon him, but when they reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, because what God thinks of you matters way more than what they think of you, and would you fix your eyes on Jesus who went before you and marked out the trail ahead of you, you would know that he was raised up even when the world considered him a scornful criminal. And the task is still for us to live in joy even through the crosses of our life. I want to end with a quote. And I want us then to just sit in stillness even as we begin to prepare communion, would you just sit for a minute and try to, in your mind's eye, consider what joy would look like being deposited within you from the most joyful being in the universe, joy that's on the next stop after the cross. And would you pray that and ask that to be your reality and let the kingdom come where the kingdom isn't and to let love and hope come where love and hope isn't. So I want to leave you with this quote, and then I'm going to pray. We're going to set up communion. And I want you to sit for a minute. And when you're ready, you can get up and then take some food for the race ahead of you. The body that was broken and the blood that was shed. But I don't want to talk so much then, so that's why I'm telling you now. So here's the quote, and then we're going to sit and pray and respond at the table. This is from a author, theologian, novelist named Frederick Beekner. He said, joy is home. God created us in joy, and he created us for joy. And in the long run, not all the darkness there is in the world and in ourselves can separate us finally from that joy. Because whatever else it means to say that God created us in His image, I think it means that even when we cannot believe in Him, even when we feel most spiritually bankrupt and deserted by Him, His mark is deep within us. We have God's joy in our blood. May it be, Lord, fill us with joy where there is not. Fill us with visions of Jesus, the risen Christ who has gone ahead of us. That we may see in our everyday actual life, for there is no other life to live, the spaces in which he's moving that is yet unseen. Give us eyes to see even if we need binoculars to fix our attention on the one who suffered. And remind us, Lord, that we've got to suffer too. I wish it weren't so, but it's true. For even the entrance into this race, Lord, is to take up a cross ourselves and die. So help us to die where we need dying to throw off the things that 
are constricting us so that we could find life on the other side of suffering and death because we found you waiting for us. Matter of fact, you've been with us the whole time. Meet us. Meet us even now in these moments. In the name of Jesus, our suffering King, amen. Be people of joy. Let joy live in your heart and share the joy of Christ with all that you meet, who you meet. Share joy by seeing the good in each other. Share joy by remembering good times and hoping for more good times to come. Share joy by praying for our world. In this Advent season, we need to see, feel, and share joy as you go out into the wonder of God's creations. Share joy, peace, and hope with all those you meet. Amen. Go in peace.